It's supposed to be one of the happiest days of someone's life. We've all seen pictures of a smiling mother looking exhausted, cradling a tiny infant in her arms. Despite the pains of labor, she usually glows. And that's the expectation, that pregnancy and delivery might be difficult, but with modern medicine, the risk to the mother's life is very, very low. For many of us, dying during childbirth is reserved for movies and books. It's something of years gone past. This was like Lady Sybil dying in, you know, the year 1920 in Downton Abbey. This is a hundred years ago this happened, but not now. And in fact, what we're saying is it's happening now. The United States has the highest rate of maternal death in the developed world. And it's estimated that over half of those deaths are preventable. As medical technology advances, you'd think that that number would steadily decrease, but not so. It's actually on the rise. So why don't we hear about it more often, and who are the women we're losing? That's what ProPublica's Nina Martin and NPR's Renee Montaigne set out to discover in their series Lost Mothers. On this week's episode, Tessa Weinberg talks with Nina and Renee about how they went about collecting the difficult stories of maternal death and digging into the complex factors contributing to the U.S.'s high rate. The investigation wasn't without roadblocks, but in the end, it had real impact. I've been in a lot of situations where I felt touched, but I've never felt quite this sort of honored. I'm Erin McKinstry, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. Back in 2000, ProPublica's Nina Martin was expecting to welcome a new nephew to the family. Her sister was pregnant. In the months leading up to the pregnancy, things were going smoothly. They were just on it. My sister took really good care of herself. Everybody was very attentive. They did all the right things. When it came time to give birth, Nina's sister had a difficult delivery. She required an emergency C-section, but gave birth to a healthy baby boy. And after a few days, she was sent home. That's when the symptoms started. At first, Nina's sister wasn't feeling very well. She couldn't breastfeed. Nina's parents began to worry. So Nina's sister went back to the hospital, where she remained for at least a week while she was treated. She was eventually told she'd had some sort of infection, but received very little information. And then she left, and she was kind of just sent home by herself to take care of herself. And she had a lot of physical trauma from what had happened. She, you know, she had this huge C-section scar and other scars that, that, that were not healing very well and that were really painful. She had a baby to take care of. Her sister's near-death experience came at a moment when her family and even the doctors and nurses expected everything to go smoothly during what's typically a happy and positive time. Nina remembers being caught completely off guard. Her whole experience was treated as if it was almost like the, you know, the, the childbirth equivalent of a unicorn. I mean, it just was so rare. These things just never happened. And she was told to kind of go away and be happy that you survived and everything. Nina continued to think about her sister's postpartum complications. More than a decade passed. Nina now covers gender and sexuality at ProPublica. And her sister's experience ultimately became the basis for an investigation into both maternal deaths 
and the woman who, like her sister, survived. The experience Nina's sister endured wasn't an isolated one. The rate of women dying in the United States, just to compare, is three times higher than women dying in Great Britain, three times higher than maternal mortality in Canada, something like six times higher than Scandinavian countries. And basically, the bottom line on maternal mortality is that women in America are more likely to die than any other industrialized nation. That's NPR special correspondent Renee Montaigne, who partnered with Nina on the investigation. Every year in the U.S., 700 to 900 women die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. To put that into perspective, that's about the number of American soldiers who died in Iraq in 2007, the war's deadliest year. Every one of those deaths was memorialized. Every, every one of them in the New York Times, there was a space for it. Everyone, at least their names, their ages, where they came from. And I, like, do that with every woman who dies in childbirth in America, and people would wake up to the problem. And if those numbers aren't enough, here's another. Some 65,000 women nearly die from pregnancy or childbirth every year. That's roughly the number of drug overdose deaths in 2016. It's a problem that can affect just about anybody, and it's a problem that, generally speaking, in, it, you know, involves a sort of cascade of issues. You know, not just one thing, not one very unhealthy or much older mother in a pregnancy, like, like a, high, a high-risk mother. It involves low-risk mothers, mothers not perceived to have any particular risk factors, healthy mothers through pregnancy, up until the moment when everything starts going wrong. And in terms of why that's happening, that's a very complicated story. And that's exactly what Nina and Renee set to find out in their joint investigation. They spent over six months searching for women who had died or nearly died in childbirth while trying to dig into what systemic failures led to these deaths. Along the way, they encountered grieving families whose pain was too fresh to share. Roadblocks from ongoing litigation and a culture of silence that places a greater emphasis on caring for newborns than the mothers that birthed them. When it came to finding women who had died or nearly died in childbirth, Nina started in the most obvious place she could think of. So the first thing I did was I Googled. Um, (laughs) That's what we do. We go on Google and Nexus, and I was struck by how... Uh, how few of those stories I was finding, and that told me that it's that these cases are are kind of um, not considered public tragedies. They're really private tragedies. They're often not mentioned in obits, et cetera. And we looked at a lot of obituaries. You would know that a mother died literally in childbirth or within days, and the and the and they didn't use those words. And they just said she died in this hospital um, suddenly. Uh, leaving behind and among the survivors are her infant baby. They didn't find many, but the few Nina and Renee did read often had GoFundMe accounts associated with them. GoFundMe is a crowdfunding site where people can solicit donations in order to reach a goal. 
So Nina decided to try searching there. I went on to GoFundMe and put in some search terms and started seeing a few cases and realized maybe if I, if I scour GoFundMe, I will find a lot of these cases. As part of her research, Nina set a couple goals. Her first, to find as many cases as she could since 2011, focusing on more recent deaths. Her second, pay special attention to African-American women wherever she could find them because she knew that many of these deaths were lost, even on social media. But the lack of stories wasn't the only difficulty Nina encountered. GoFundMe is not (laughs) designed for search. It's not designed for investigative journalism. It was really, um, it's a very difficult platform to work with. The searches weren't just intense for the level of detail they required. Searches that were really actually, I realize in retrospect, quite grueling emotionally because in order to find them, you have to read through these cases. You know, sometimes the death is only hinted at, you know, somewhere in the body of the, of the copy. And, and, and what you see on GoFundMe is just so profoundly sad, you know, overall. Another tool Nina used, and one she recommends every investigative journalist have in their arsenal, is Facebook Signal. If you're not familiar with Signal, it's a Facebook tool that lets journalists search for trends and posts. And while it has a variety of uses, Nina specifically used the signal feature that allows you to search all public posts using keywords. I think I'd originally sort of typed in words like died childbirth or, you know, or pregnancy complications or something. And certainly things turned up with those. But what I realized was that in reading through the obits, people often, and the, and the, and the GoFundMe is that people sort of write more euphemistically sometimes about what happened, or more gently. Finding keywords that would yield results was a process of trial and error. Sometimes, Nina would get lucky, and a name would appear in the search results. Someone may have written, for example, My friend Jane Doe just died in childbirth. Condolences to her family. Other times, the post would be more vague and read along the lines of, A good friend of mine from high school just died in childbirth. So, you know, one, like just one evening search, because that's usually when I did it, could, you know, involve repeated searches using multiple combinations of those words. From there, Nina and a group of New York University graduate journalism students who were assisting her with the project reached out to the people they found. The hardest part of it was that nobody had done this before. We, we didn't like have a template to explain to people what we were doing. And we also had found a lot of people on social media. And, you know, it was interesting in the fall when I was reaching out to women who nearly died. I was using Facebook a lot to do that. And I was having no problems getting through to people. I mean, it was super easy. And then the election happened. And, you know, there was so much ugliness around social media and, and people tracking people and so forth. Telling people in early January, you know, that we had found their names on Facebook and, you know, for a death that had happened like almost a year before, that was a little bit weird to people. Another obstacle they faced, some of the deaths were so recent that family and friends were too traumatized by the experience to talk about it. Families had just started to heal and weren't yet ready to revisit what happened, especially with a stranger calling out of the blue. On top of that, Nina found that maternal deaths have a habit of crashing into families, devastating them in ways she hadn't thought about before. Sometimes families fell apart after a mother's death, 
and there could be a cleaving between the victim's side of the family and her partner's. You know, you have to go on Facebook and try to really understand, okay, should we be reaching out to this man, or should we try to, maybe the mother or the mother's side of the family will be more responsive. But if it is the mother's side of the family, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't um, sort of inflame any any sensitivities that, that could be there um, and, and, you know, re-traumatize them about the loss. Nina and Renee stumbled into all of these roadblocks with the first few women they wanted to feature. One was an African-American nurse who had died in the hospital where she worked in early 2016. She died on her last shift before going on bed rest. And we thought, we want to tell her story. And that was in the local newspaper, real tiny little newspaper on the East Coast. So we knew where to find them, and Nina ended up calling the pastor and actually, they were fine about sending the memorial card that you get where it says everyone's name and what songs are being sung, that sort of thing. I mean, it was a list of people who were her, the closest friends and relatives. So we put calls out to all of them. Nobody ever called back. They never heard from any of the woman's relatives until her widower wrote back on Facebook and said, I really can't face this. And it was just too much for her family. They didn't want us to tell her story. And we had a number of those. People who wouldn't respond, or finally they would respond, and they honestly were genuinely sweet. Nobody was ever harsh or don't darken my door ever again. I mean, there was none of that. They were all things to make you even, you know, sadder about it because they were all just too hurt. Nina and Renee were having little success cold-calling people they found on social media. In February, they published a call-out on ProPublica and NPR, asking readers to share if they knew someone who died or nearly died in childbirth. In a few days, they received nearly 2,500 responses. They also reached out to organizations that worked to raise awareness about maternal deaths and the complications surrounding them. The reporters hoped the organizations could help get the word out to people who have been affected. One group, the Preeclampsia Foundation, sent Nina and Renee a list of names. Desperate to get the project moving, they reached out to everyone on the list. One of them was Larry Bloomstein. And we didn't know very much about him except that his wife had been a nurse. And we thought, whoa, okay, that's weird to find another one of those. Larry was a doctor, and his wife, Lauren Bloomstein, was a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. And in 2011... She was pregnant. After taking care of other people's babies for years, she was finally going to have one of her own. When it came time, the delivery went smoothly, and Lauren gave birth to Haley Bloomstein, weighing at 5 pounds and 12 ounces. In those hours after giving birth, Lauren developed preeclampsia, a disorder that occurs only during and after pregnancy and is characterized by hypertension. Her elevated blood pressure had triggered bleeding in her brain, and she suffered from a hemorrhagic stroke. It was later confirmed Lauren had HELP syndrome, the most severe type of preeclampsia. Twenty hours after giving birth to her daughter, Lauren died. By the time Nina and Renee approached Larry, five years had passed. Larry had remarried and had a second daughter. Larry was 
open, and he had thought about it. He knew what NPR was. He, I think, knew about ProPublica at that point, and that was helpful. And we had gone in saying, look, we want somebody who's willing to do this. And he was ready. Larry was ready. We went where Larry, in that case, where he was willing to go. Their initial interview with Larry lasted for nearly four hours as he took them through the night that Lauren died. Nina and I went out there on a stormy, rainy late afternoon and stayed so much later than we thought we were going to stay. We went to see him, and he was very sweet and nice. He's a really lovely man. And come in, come in, and the girls went off to, the, the they're now two little sisters, right, went off to, I think, a ballet. He started off really pretty straightforward, like someone telling a story. And, and the details about her, he was quite matter-of-fact in the nicest way, just she loved this and she loved that. But when he got into the real story of her dying, you watched him change completely. I, we watched, he just was back there. You could, you could feel it. That story took as long as it practically took for her to, to die. I mean, in a sense, those last moments, he told them so slowly and so in such detail. Here's Larry describing Lauren's final moments to Nina and Renee. And uh, so they took her to the operating room, and the neurosurgeon uh, they operated for, I think, about four hours. And when he came out, um, he said that she's, she's still alive. She's basically on life support, but she's brain dead. So at that point, we uh, decided to withdraw. Draw care. Part of that interview included Larry showing Nina and Renee a home video. The video is short, just 36 seconds. In it, Lauren is holding a swaddled Haley. She coos softly and looks at the camera, tearing up. It's one of the few times in the piece that we see Lauren before she died. Nina and Renee didn't have to push Larry to show them the video. He volunteered. He said, let me show you something. He was very open then. And I, oh, I couldn't, again, it was like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And we played it several times. Because when you saw it the first time, you almost, it goes by fast. It's only a few seconds. It's like a little home video. And he, he just took this little video like any father would. And she was, like, so dear and touching. He cried and we cried and I think that kind of made it very real in a way that it hadn't been. For Nina, that video answered one of the big questions that had been on her mind. A lot of times when you're reporting on these stories, you're always questioning whether something actually happened and 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 whether you aren't sort of sanitized you know whoever's telling you the story isn't somehow sanitizing it and I guess one of the questions that we had it wasn't real skepticism but it's just one of those things that's sort of always in your head it's like was she really healthy like she wasn't really that you know maybe like wasn't she maybe there was something really the matter with her and and but then you see this woman who's just given birth and she looks incredibly healthy and happy and and just kind of brimming with joy and it just kind of um it was such a gut punch interviews and medical records also helped verify Larry's account of Lauren's final hours 
sifting through everything was an emotional task. And you're reading it, and they quote Lauren. <laughs> I mean, the, the medical records do and the excerpts do, where patient says, please do anything to make this pain go away. And, you know, when you read that on a piece of paper, there are like 12 pieces of paper sitting there, and they're all kind of cool, you know, like emotionally cool. Da, 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 does this, just notes. And then you, and then by now I practically know Lauren. And, and you read that line, and I just lost it. While Nina and Renee didn't have much trouble getting Larry to open up, the duo had a more difficult time convincing the hospital and the doctors to give their side of the story. Larry had filed a complaint against the hospital with the New Jersey Department of Health's Licensing and Inspection Division in 2012 after Lauren had died. The department found the hospital at fault, but no disciplinary action was ever taken. A few months after the department issued its report, Larry sued the hospital, the obstetrician that treated Lauren, and five nurses. The lawsuit is still ongoing, five years later. Neither the hospital, the doctor that treated Lauren, or his team would speak with Nina and Renee for the story. I mean, it was like a no, uh, a sort of no comment situation. And they said simply, we're in litigation. Renee and Nina also learned that two other pregnant women had received care from the same medical practice as Lauren and also died. But the reporters were wary of making the focus of the story solely about a doctor or a medical practice. They wanted it to be bigger than that. You know, so we got whatever documents there were. There weren't a lot. Often the, the court record is not very helpful in some of these kinds of cases sometimes. But we really wanted to hear from the doctor, and we knew that there would be depositions. The depositions would do two things. Verify some of the information they got from Larry and medical records, and add some additional insights, including testimony from the doctors and hospital. But acquiring the depositions took some persuading. So we tried, you know, every way we could. And one of the things that we just kind of, as our Hail Mary pass at the end, we, you know, we reached out, you know, independently to the, to the company that did the depositions. And they were like, well, you have to get the permission from the lawyers. So Nina and Renee got back in touch with Larry's lawyer, this time writing a letter arguing that it was in the public interest to release the records. Larry's lawyer presented their letter to court, where a judge ruled there was no legal reason they couldn't have access. But he still wouldn't release them. Ultimately, Nina decided to give Larry a call. She had a few fact-checking questions she thought could be answered by the deposition. And so I, I reached out to him just to, you know, to sort of say, hey, could you check this for me, please? And he said, you know, I'm just going to send this to you. And he did, and that's how we got him. And with the deposition came the doctor's testimony. When it comes to preeclampsia, there's surprisingly little known about it. There's a notion that it'll go away during birth. But 80% of women die of it after birth. And that's partly because, in fact, it can appear and become deadly after birth. This is an important misconception, because when the doctor who treated Lauren was asked three times by Larry's lawyer in the deposition, what is the cure or the treatment for preeclampsia? And each time he said birth giving birth. That is the only cure.
As Nina and Renee wrapped up their reporting, they knew they wanted the story to be published around Mother's Day. The initial 9,000-word piece would run on both ProPublica and NPR's websites with an accompanying seven-minute radio piece. But right around when they planned on running the story, James Comey was fired as director of the FBI. Nina and Renee's story had to be pushed back a day, but the delay didn't lessen the overwhelming impact. So I got tons of letters from women. We got tons of letters from doctors and nurses saying, I've seen things like this happen in my own hospital. I was surprised. I was expecting a lot more pushback from doctors and nurses, but that's not what we got. Nina heard from doctors and nurses that said they printed the story out and left it in their staff room for people to read. They've heard from researchers who, despite studying the issue of maternal mortality for years, said they never heard it personalized in such a gut-wrenching way. And they heard from women, women who had gone through similar experiences as Lauren Bloomstein and survived, expectant mothers who avoided a possible tragedy because after reading the story, they knew what to look for. We have gotten several letters from women who said, in liter- they said to us, reading this piece saved my life. I didn't know that this might happen to me, and when it started happening, I knew that I needed to get help. So it, it's like, wow. <laughs> Some of the readers they've heard from have worked to save the lives of other women. Mary McCausland was one of the first to share how the story helped save her life. Reading the investigation helped her pinpoint her own symptoms when she was having postpartum complications. But she didn't stop there. She went back to the hospital where she gave birth. In an email to Nina and Renee, she explained that after meeting with staff, the hospital said it would provide women more information on spotting dangerous postpartum symptoms. And that whole business of postpartum care is so key to all of this, that, that it's a change that she, she herself, we didn't go back to them. She did. You know, she felt empowered. And I think that those kinds of responses are really gratifying. But also, um, I, I think they're, they're kind of real. I mean, there's sort of some real world changes. I don't think we're going to make them, but I think we're part of the word getting out and people feeling empowered. But Nina and Renee's work isn't finished. They've identified over 500 deaths since 2011, including 135 in 2016. Since the initial piece ran, they've continued to report on the issue, publishing a gallery of extended obituaries and sharing advice from women who nearly died themselves. They've even held forums to discuss steps expectant mothers can take. Nina and Renee have even more projects in the works, including reporting that looks at some of the solutions being developed to combat maternal mortality. So there's more work to do, but that hasn't stopped Nina from recognizing the changes they've made and the people who helped them get there. Whenever Nina hears from a reader about how the story made a difference, she forwards it along to one person in particular. She wants him to hear what an impact he's made. I send them to Larry, actually. That's one of the things I do. Um, We've been privileged to tell Lauren's story, and Larry is the person who made that possible. And Larry did it because he really wanted people to react the way they have. And so I send those stories to Larry, and he feels like he did the right thing. 
for listening to this episode of the IRE Radio Podcast. You can find links to the series as well as reporting resources in our episode notes. On our next episode, we talk with Sara Morstahet-Sade from the Toronto Star about going undercover in, of all places, an industrial bakery. Three different temporary workers had died there since 1999. You know, just to give you a sense of, of what this environment is like, it is an industrial environment. It's not like, you know, grandma's bakery. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Over the last three years, we've made more than 60 episodes about some of the best investigative reporting happening across the country. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Tessa Weinberg reported this episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Mary McKinstry. Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.